Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. With me today is Sophie Spaven. Sophie is an ERM lead for Shell. She directly manages a team of 10 leaders herself, but supports 6,500 technology and engineering professionals as part of the overall Shell technology business. She's had a really interesting career to date, which is why I'm so delighted she's here. Sophie, great to be with you. How are you and how on earth has the last 12 months been for you? Good. I feel like I am uh, surviving sometimes thriving and if I look back at the last 12 months they have been a true ride they have been probably one of the craziest uh, rides I've ever had as well as doing all of that in COVID. You've, I mean one of the things that I think would be fascinating to hear because I'm sure some of the people listening would have done the same journey is that you've actually gone from being a contractor to, to being a permanent member of the team for a first time so just give me a a little insight into the changes that that's involved. So I was a permanent member of staff in every business that I've ever worked in until November 2017. So I returned from Australia, having fallen in love and moved continents and life all the way back home. And I was looking for an opportunity to try something that I'd never done before and to challenge myself in a way that I'd never had in previous lives and experiences. And so I joined Shell, as I said, in November 2017 and was very happy in being a contractor. They are very good to uh, the people that work for them. It doesn't matter necessarily whether you are a contractor or a permanent member of staff. But the one thing I have noticed that I raised with my VP recently is that becoming a permanent member of staff when you work at Shell is undeniably such a big change because they focus so much on your development. They have a rule in Shell that you spend 70% of your life doing the job that you can do and you should be able to achieve that with your skills and your experience and you can rely on your common sense and also your ability to bring the right people together to do that. Then you have 20% of your life, and this is encouraged, that you should be on the edge of your learning. You should be in that almost fight or flight stage where you've really got to uh, bring together your ways of uh, being able to, I say it's your, your ways of, of previously achieving things and apply it to something completely new, new content, new people, new opportunities. And then 10% of it should be something completely different. So you should always be spending 10% of your week or 10% of your month doing something that is nothing to do with your job. Wow. So you are constantly evolving. So I think Shell is one of these places where if I take a reflection on, on how I have worked in the business directly for the last 12 months, the entire focus is on training you and developing you to your next role. It's great that you're doing the job that you're doing now and you've been picked for it because you are very good at what it is that you have done to date. But your uh, personal development plan, 
your projects that you work on, your managers' weekly or monthly conversations is around how can they push you to your next role? And they expect that people should be there. There's, there's little attrition in Shell. People have been there for 25, 30 years. And that is because of that fact. I, I think it's great to hear some of those numbers. And I think for a lot of people, and definitely including myself, fairly eye-opening numbers, 70% doing your role, 20% doing something where you're on the edge of the learning, something com- mm-hmm. completely new, and then 10% of learning of nothing to do with your job. I mean, the perspective that that must give and a very, very different mindset to probably the sector that you've kind of learned a bit about. And we're going to get on to speaking a little bit about what's got you to where you are now, because your journey has been, as I mentioned in the intro, a very interesting one. But your bio on LinkedIn describes you as a slashy. It also describes you and your joy about being a servant leader. There'll be lots of people out there, no doubt, that will know what you mean. But I definitely, when I read that, was not one of them. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what on earth a slashy is. Yeah. So it, look, I was trying to be cool. Um, There's a lot of people that are coming up in the technology and engineering world where, and and it's a similar description to what a polyglot is. So somebody who is able to do multiple things at the same time, and it is genuinely forward slash. So when you try to encapsulate all of something that, all of something that everyone, uh, someone needs to deliver, it is, uh, I think I put on there at the time, my role was doing a chief of staff role. However, I also needed to be their head of recruitment, but I also needed to be the head of, um, Uh, health and safety. So it was a real myriad of deliverables, but it it ended up making a role that you couldn't necessarily put a title on. So it was all of those things wrapped up into one. And when I read your description of it, um, a slashy, as you say, you described it as a chief of staff, head of operations, strategic projects, as well as head of people and talent. That's a hell of a broad role. But then when I started looking through your background, you're a managing director of a recruitment business in Australia. Mm-hmm. You did a degree in drama and film. And one of the questions that I really want to ask you about, <laughs> I really want to ask you about is if you had any one of those jobs that you look back now and say, God, that was pretty horrific at the time, but I did yeah. have a lot of learning during that. Yeah. So would all of that wide and varied background stand you in good stead to you know the future of becoming as slashy as you describe it? Just give me a, a bit about your background from a working perspective. Okay. My first and worst job ever, I was a fishmonger's assistant (laughs) and I stank a fish every Saturday and all my friends worked in the greengrocers next door or the bakers further around the corner and I lived in a small village and that was the only job going and I was 15 at the time. I just got my national insurance card and my God, I wanted money and I was willing to do anything. And it was vile. I cleaned vans. I gutted fish. I cleaned scales off fish. I wasn't allowed to even serve customers. I was genuinely back of house, cleaner upper And it was disgusting. So that's my first and worst job ever. And I looked back at that time. Why was I doing it? What did, exactly? What did I learn? And actually what I learned was my what I valued was being able to make sure that I didn't lean on my mum too much and that I absolutely, my morals were about making sure that whatever happened, I would be able to be self-sufficient and that I was comfortable in doing things that were not what I really wanted to do, but what were necessary to do. 
And I think that that's, that's something in recruitment in particular, absolutely stands you in good stead is you don't want to pick up that call the 99th time because one to 98 were just horrible. But 99 could be the difference of you taking home a good paycheck, of being able to achieve what it is that you have as your own personal life goals. And I said, I knew what my goals were. They were always front and center of my focus. And they were something that I was, was not willing to put, not necessarily pride, but I wasn't willing to put just something that was not that enjoyable as, as something that I needed to do. Give me your thoughts in relation to the type of university degree that you had and also how strong your CV is because you work for an extremely reputable company in Shell. There's got to, there's going to be some pretty high standards to get in with that kind of business. So mm-hmm. tell me how you managed to, to bridge that gap and bridge the balance, so to speak. If I look at, so the role that is most recent on my LinkedIn, although I feel like I definitely need to update it to the most recent one. So when I was a contractor, it was about building um, a community of uh, innovation labs. So we created one in four different main locations that Shell has. And what I think the education point for hiring managers in the first instance was that perfect doesn't exist and that you need to be able to hire on somebody's ability to prove in their background that they can learn and adapt. And that's the difference, I think, and why it is that we were so successful in building at such speed. I think the last count was we're at four or 500 people across the different hubs. Now, yes, some came and go, so not any, at any one time, but it was really about recognizing what it is that somebody was able to bring to the table. And again, using the similar rule, have they got 60, 70% of what it is that we need, but can they show in their background and in their previous experience that they weren't just, and one trick pony maybe doesn't quite describe what I'm looking to say, but that they were really comfortable in high amounts of ambiguity. So therefore, as and when we change in innovation labs, the content or the client, the end user is going to consistently push you off track? Have you got the challenger mentality? Can you see that somebody has taken on a role that maybe they weren't initially hired to do, but they excelled in? Can you see somebody's self-reflection when they know they didn't do something well within a project or that their project did fail, but what they learned from it and their ability to be very uh, self-aware within a team because those things at that time when you're building small product squads when you're building innovation labs you have to be able to be much more than the skills that on are on your cv you could have 10 degrees it still doesn't necessarily give you the right eq or the right uh learner mindset that is not about learning technology, but learning about humans and behavior and people. Why do you think business fails to attract or fails to have as many women in senior leadership positions as it does? Mm-hmm. Moment, the conversation, if, and in fact, if I liken it to Shell, there's one thing that Shell is very good at is the conversation isn't just about male and female, but it is about diversity of the organization. And that is where your background, uh, whether that is the role that you've done, whether it is the country you live in, the experiences that you've had, 
the challenges that you faced, whether that is disability or otherwise, as well as it being about male and female. I think sometimes businesses look at DNI about being very binary. It's one or the other. And now there is this whole much wider conversation around LGBTQIA. And I think it's also looked at in isolation versus male and female. And I think that it's bringing DNI together. For my own personal experiences, what is it or why is it the case is I don't necessarily think that leaders have necessarily been developed or trained in a way that gives them the feeling of safety maybe in how it is that they work with their female staff. Um, I think that we assume that managers can be leaders and that we give managers this pretty wide overarching responsibility for the health and wellness of their team. Now, If you're a manager, you can only manage on outcomes rather than on being able to get the very best out of the people that work for you. So in a number of cases, somebody isn't going to feel confident in raising to their manager that they would like to be able to have more flexibility or that they would like to be able to have that larger job or the stretch or can I be involved? And actually, I don't think if you're a good leader, you already recognizing all of the traits and the positive uh, performances of your team and also where it is that they do need development. And I talk about my own manager myself is I have never worked for somebody until this year that absolutely I trust implicitly with my career and I trust implicitly with anything I could tell him. And that's because he's taken the time to understand what I'm not good at and be very comfortable in putting it on the table as the things we're going to work on and develop in. And that also he pushes me into projects where he knows that that's going to be something I'm going to have to work on. And it's, it's about the giving people the opportunity to be visible in their organization. I think naturally, unless you are a go-getter and you ask for it, managers don't necessarily understand how best to be able to give that visibility. And visibility is one of the most important things. It shows who you are and what you're capable of to people above the person that is you're directly reporting to. So you maybe never get the opportunity. The bits that I think that I can just relate to so much in relation to our progression as a mm-hmm. business, but also your own experiences there, the data's out there for everyone, diverse teams. You're absolutely right. It's not about mm-hmm. men and women. It's about diverse teams. Mm-hmm. period really and mm-hmm. and the data's out there that diverse teams are just better like an argued fact and 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 but but also and it is it's especially prevalent in industries that need leaders and recruitment is very very uh, you know very very good at promoting high achieving people to be mm-hmm. with what they do but the reality is when you've only been in the industry a few years you end up just trying to hire yourself absolutely you you try to hire your, yourself and personality and all the rest of it so guess what that does well, you're only going to get a certain type of person that you're going to end up hiring, and it's a vicious Absolutely. circle. But the the additional things that I think once you get into those leadership positions, there's something that jumped out to what you said there. Being pushed by someone is so important, but that mm-hmm. has to be done in the right way. That takes Absolutely. EQ, that takes experience, and that can take a while to find. And I think really from what you're saying as well, I think it would be a great learn for all of the listeners would be of, of, of people having access to multiple leaders. 
we really try and make sure we've got a community of Exfor people with this. Mm -hmm. Not in the last 12 months with all masks and distancing involved, but even that we've attempted to do via Zoom. But having access to multiple people with different thoughts, different processes, and people that do things in a different way, because only by doing that can you end up at the type of leader that you want to be, right? So, um, yeah, and I think people- you've got to have those values as well ingrained in your business. You've got to have that learner mindset. You've got to encourage people to challenge, but challenge purposefully rather than just challenge for the sake of it. And if you have those types of ingrained values, then people feel like it is their responsibility to be able to step up and speak out. And therefore, you're giving everyone a level playing field. Whereas if that's not encouraged then you'll find that more often than not, and I think it's a well-known statistic, that a male colleague has no qualms in asking for a ridiculous pay rise and that bigger job and going for it consistently, whereas a female will wait and hold back in the hope that they're going to be noticed for the good work that they've done. So again, it's not the the loudest isn't necessarily the right person. And I think as long as you've got people in those leadership positions who can really recognize that somebody is not necessarily going to put their hand up to do something, but if you were to give them the opportunity by making them visible and giving them that empowerment, the, the challenge of it, they would absolutely over and above achieve more than the person who said, give me it, I want it, because they've then felt like, again, that somebody is taking the time to see them, to hear them, to, again, to to make sure that they are part of the team and therefore the conversation. So then they, again, you'll then see in, in longer terms, you have somebody that is going to be willing to stay a lot longer. Your retention goes up. You have this divergent thinking and convergent thinking. And again, now you're really changing your DNI because you've got people in the right places being able to complement each other to do more. Hence, you'll then have more leaders in women because, again, people are so so naturally – they do that naturally in, in what they're, they're being asked to do every day. Let's talk about the, the, the top one, two, or three biggest learns that you've had over the last 12 months. What, mm-hmm. what, what strings do you have to your bow now that you didn't before? Well, I think I said to you at the very beginning, this is my first permanent role in Shell, and it is probably one of the biggest leaps. And I took a leaf out of a number of mail books and I said, I, I want if this, and I called their bluff to a certain degree and it worked. And so I'm genuinely in a job that is probably the biggest one that I've ever had to do. I think if I've learned anything is, this will sound backwards coming forwards, but I'll explain consistently inconsistent is okay and that's not based on my performance but it's based on what it is that we're having to focus on so the fact that the world is working at home in a crisis they're not just working from home and that we are constantly having to evolve if i look back shell at one point was negative dollars to the barrel that causes a huge amount of very quick change in the business in order for self-preservation, in order for cost preservation. We looked um, at 
huge changing priorities and the ability to be very comfortable in ambiguity and in an ever-changing, built-on-sand kind of 12 months, if you're okay walking into work to say, I'm not going to be able to solve everything, but I am going to be able to problem solve and to be able to bring those right people together is, I think, has been one of my biggest learns. I also have spent a huge amount of time listening to my team. And also, for me, I think it was really important to establish a way of working with the people that had chosen to do the role and hadn't necessarily chosen me as their boss or their leader. And I understood what drives them, again, what they struggle with, what they want to be when they aren't, they aren't doing this role. And also being able to see what they're really great at and what gets them out of bed and what it is that for them, what is their challenger purposeful feeling of being able to come to work every day. And in doing so, what I found is I've been really blessed with a team that I can spread my workload across. And I'm very comfortable and very confident that I could leave the room, leave my desk, not look at my computer for weeks, and that they would be very comfortable in taking ownership, making decisions. And we're talking like decisions that could cost millions, really, if we were to do the wrong thing, but also decisions that could save us time and effort and bring us great opportunities for hiring in the market. They've been given and have been empowered to do so. And this is very much based on projects that they are running. And I give them inputs. I'm their sounding board. But what I'm not is the helicopter or the owner. And I think that's been, for somebody who's used to taking on everything myself, and I've always been one of these people, that will just give that to me. I might as well do it myself. Or that I know in my own I guess mind I need to be able to own and do something to feel like I uh, am valued and valuable and the big imposter syndrome inside of me says well if no if I've just done it and I've got them to kind of help me then I can present it out and then people will believe that I can actually do the job that I'm doing I had to absolutely I think point three is I had to let go of that feeling that you I don't know everything. And that stress and that pressure and genuinely, there have been moments this year when I have gone into the office and online and cried because I physically have got to that point where I am so aware I need to be good at what I'm doing and that I don't know it and that that feeling is so uncomfortable. It's, it's the worst feeling in the world that you don't feel like you can do what you've been asked to do or that you can't solve an issue that you know you should be able to do. But I think in letting that go, being able to surround yourself with good people, being able to think about who within the organization and who within my peer group or who in my sounding board mentor group or people that I know outside of the industry can just give me that second opinion, that different lens, and that it's it's okay not to know everything and do everything and be everything, and that this is all part of your journey to evolve into being 
a different leader or a different person, that that's okay. I've got something that I want to come on to because it's actually one of those very little spoken about things of mm-hmm. something you mentioned that we're going to come back to. But I definitely know that I'm one of those glass half full people. And maybe mm-hmm. every now and then to my detriment, maybe it's not realistic enough, but I, I like being a bit of a, an optimist in, in life. COVID's been so horrible for so many people. But from a business perspective, would you say that you're much better now than you were before? A little bit better? Would you say it, you'd, you'd be that unequivocal? Unequivocal. I think the, what, what has COVID done for me, my team, and our organization, it has proved that we can trust each other implicitly, that we are all in this together that we would do anything to lighten the load for somebody else and that there's so much more empathy and understanding on other people's lives. And actually, when you come to work and someone says, do you know what, I I can't come in today because kids are doing something crazy or I just can't. I, I'm having a mental health day. I physically cannot do it. The, the pouring out of just I think love is probably the wrong word but real empathy and desire to want to make sure that we as an organization and, and in my team in particular that we would do anything and everything for each other I think I say to my team also I just happen to have a different job title that doesn't necessarily mean that I am better different or anything we are one team we are doing it together I just so happen to have a role where I need to report out on all of the good things that we're doing and I I think if I were to look at what we're going to do when we go back into the office I think it will be very different I think there won't be so much of an expectation that people will need to see you with your bum on a seat and actually the trust is is so much stronger than it ever has been it's, it's made everyone a lot more human again. I couldn't agree yeah. more on the on the empathy point. I think before business and big corporation was seen very much in a cutthroat. You've got to, mm-hmm. this is the way you've got to behave. Isn't it lovely to not be the same the kind of judgy leadership teams that many businesses had before? Isn't it nice mm-hmm. to say we talk about holiday way more than before? We talk about well being. We kind of want to make sure that people are all right because mm-hmm. if people are all right. That's all that really matters. Yeah. And well, people are going to be more productive, better at their jobs, and, and, and they're going to enjoy themselves more, which, as we know, yeah. is what is, is what a good working team is all about. Absolutely. I think people are 100% surprised at how productive and how committed. I think on the flip side, what we're actually seeing is we're telling people, and I'm telling my team, I'm having to tell myself, 70-hour weeks because you happen to be at your desk, because your desk is your front room, it's not okay. And you do not have to overcommit yourself and be chained to deliver, deliver, deliver. I think that we need to, the, the one thing that I would also take from it in the self-reflection is you need to be okay with the fact that your business demands a lot that will never change. And in return, the the amount that you demand of yourself is huge. However, you would never have the conversation with your team that you have in your head with yourself. And that actually you need to be kinder to yourself that doing that extra work 
on a Friday night because you're not doing anything else because there's nowhere else to go. Or you might as well catch up on that thing on Sunday all day and then you're in a rabbit hole because there's nothing else. Work will never go away. You need to be able to give yourself the moment to have the space, the time, the the peace to actually let your brain switch off and to 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 copy like to, to actually just chill out absolutely and this this is a a series the first 10 episodes we're going to be doing are going to be from people from across mm-hmm. the technology life sciences communication sectors and one of the things that i've enjoyed enormously in my role over the last six to 12 months has been there's a lot of roles despite your industry there's a lot of things that are extremely transferable there's a lot of mm-hmm. shared problems and shared issues to be sorted so i think there'll be a lot of people that will resonate with what you're saying there i learned something a few years ago about crying right you mentioned it before yeah about, like, there'll be some meetings you come out of or before where you, oh it's just it's such a a build-up of either frustration or emotion whatever it may be what role do you think that crying plays in particular for, for you know for women leaders and women professionals because for men, it's a probably a, a, a pretty rare thing, but yeah. we all currently know that we're wired in different ways. Yeah. Just give the listeners a bit of an insight into the role that it plays and how finally and thankfully it's not that kind of taboo subject mm-hmm. that you've not mentioned about before. Mm-hmm. Just give me a little bit of a rundown of, of, of yeah. the role that's played in your professional life. Do you know what? It's, it's actually a great conversation starter with some of my colleagues at work. And I, uh, I took a day off yesterday because I couldn't do any more. I had competing priorities at home. I had huge amounts of competing priorities that were very operational. There was nothing strategic about them. They were just constant escalations. And I am, unfortunately at the moment, a center point for a lot of deliverables. And I just had one of those days where I woke up in the morning and I had a good old cry while I was walking the dog. And my poor other half was like, are you going to self-combust? Like, I'm going to hug you, but I can't fix anything. And I actually just messaged my boss and I said, I'm having a real moment right now. This is where I'm at. And I was very honest about it. I said, I've got a great boss. And I, I fronted it and I said, this is all I can do. And then today when people said, are you okay? You weren't in the office yesterday. I said, you know what? I had a good cry and it's a real conversation starter. And suddenly. If you're honest about what you're feeling, the amount of people that say, if I can do anything for you, I let me take that off you. I also did the same. I sometimes feel this way. It actually opens up a lot about mental health conversations. Um, but I, do you know what? Sometimes it's a good release. Like it really is. Actually, they say that crying is very good at being able to unlock the valve. And you just, it's like watching air come out of a radiator. The radiator can't function properly. It can't keep you warm until you've released all the pressure and that air. It's the same with crying. You almost get to a point where you have the inability to think straight, that you have the inability to do a successful job every day. Have a good cry. Off goes the valve and you're back to, ah, okay. I can probably write a good day plan again and off I go. I think as long as leaders, you're empathetic to that and don't expect them to react like you, that's probably one of my biggest failings in the last mm-hmm. 12 months. That, Well, that's how I would have taken it. What, what's that got to do with the person yeah. you're dealing with? And yeah. that's a question 
I feel like we could talk for quite a while, Sophie, to be honest with you. But let's maybe, if you wouldn't mind sharing, as I say, that's been my big error from the last 12 months. It's probably, well, I'm I'm ready to move on now. Well, if someone else isn't, Pete, that's kind of yeah. irrelevant. Uh, well, it's you know, about managing simply. on other people's expectations and not on your own. And if Absolutely. you can do that, that, that's the difference of listening versus telling. <laughs> Yeah, couldn't agree with you anymore. Um, and, and let's maybe share one final thing before we go on to three shorter, slightly more quirky questions in relation to restaurants and books and these things. Yeah. Um, the most significant error you've made in the last 12 months? When I first started, I took on everything and I just said yes. Yep, 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 yep. And I tried to shield my team from giving them too much or putting too much pressure on them. And actually, what I needed to do, which is what I'm doing now, was I drowned myself. I made silly mistakes in in data. I made silly mistakes when reporting. I made myself feel very silly in a role that I just started in front of very senior people. And they were just silly mistakes that they didn't necessarily need to happen. But in hindsight, they were the reason and the learning as to how I've got to now what I needed to have done and what I should have done in the first place is be very comfortable in empowering all of my staff to take on some fairly sticky and tricky projects, but with me in support so that I could do the things that I needed to do whilst they could be learning, developing and doing the things that they needed to do. And then it's a bit more of a collaborative environment rather than the, don't worry, I'll just drown. I think it's what I put on, and I truly believe in this, and I heard it years ago, it's the servant leader, that you are not somebody's manager. You are not somebody's, I did use the word at the beginning of the podcast, you're not someone's boss, but you are somebody's, and we call it leader. And that A leader is different to many people. And to be honest, just because you have reports, yes, you get called a leader, you can have no reports and still be a leader. But it's about being able to give and be able to play a role that is about being in somebody's team as much as it is about getting them to where they need to go. So just the fact that, I don't know, Harry Kane is the captain of... Tottenham Hotspur, he is also one of their key players and is the reason that they are able to achieve what they want to. I feel like that was the best football analogy that I've ever used. <laughs> what are you the most proud of and what you've done so far? I think making the transition, in fact, I'll take that back. I went to my CEO when I worked for Nakama and I said, here is a business plan. I want to take on Melbourne. You're going to fly me down there and I'm going to be the MD. And he said, yes. And that was the start of, I think, for the first time ever, actually believing in myself. But I worked for a company that spent its entire life telling you were not good enough. Do more, build more. And this was one of the only times where I said, I'm more than just the money I put on a board. And actually, I I know I can do this and achieve this. And I think that is my absolute turning point in how and why it is that I've been able to make a transition into a job that realistically on paper, I shouldn't be able to do this. I absolutely shouldn't. But what I think I gave myself the opportunity to recognize was that I had so many transferable skills and I had so many qualities that I had learnt from people within the industry or that I, I hopefully aspired to be as 
the the thing that other people wanted to see and that that then changed the course into now making the transition into a job that I love right couple of quick fire questions yeah to finish things up it's been such a fantastic talk Sophie thanks so much for for, for giving your time to us what's the best book or podcast that you could recommend that you've taken long-lasting learns from over the last 12 24 months don't listen to that many solid leadership podcasts. I listen to Complete Tut. So the Lockdown Parenting podcast has been just one that's light on the load and also shagged, married, annoyed. And that's, and I, the re, why do I listen to them and I don't necessarily always listen to something that is about evolving myself is actually those are the moments that I give myself back where I can be just silly and it's a bit like nonsensical and fun and funny and also means that you're not alone because the things that they talk about are the things that are going on in the macro climate finally sophie favorite restaurant or bar to spend a long post-covid world no restrictions Mm -hmm. afternoon i live down in brighton so i live by the sea and there is a place called riddle and fins and it is down in the north lane you can't book. It's four large high marble tables and it is, you got to sit with whoever's at the table and they get fish from the local, uh, there's in Shoreham, which is just a little bit down the road. There is a local fishmongers. It comes straight in off the boat every day. They do whatever it is on the catch that has been done. They'll make up the recipes for that day. It is a place where you drink a lot of bubbles a lot of really good white wine, a good Sancerre or similar, followed by some kind of espresso martini. And then you'll wobble your way into the lanes to a another cocktail place. But I think there's more pubs and bars than there are people in Brighton. But that's that's my one place that is my happy place. I'm sure that'll be getting a visit, hopefully before too long. Sophie, thank you so much for sharing your journey and leadership learns with us today. I'm sure there'll be loads that will have resonated with the listeners and like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thanks everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Speak to you soon.